Welcome to the Paradox PT Podcast, where we discuss all things physical therapy, rehabilitation, and clinical practice. I'm your host, Leo Falzon. Today, my co-host Brandon Kemper and I discuss whether it's best to focus on pain or on function in rehab. Are those two aims ever mutually exclusive? When should our focus be solely on pain modulation, and when should we focus on function to the exclusion of pain? While neither of us started with fully formed, strong opinions here, I think we were able to make some good headway on these questions, and I definitely came out of the conversation with some new insights. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that I recorded this from my car, so if by about minute 45 you can hear my teeth chattering and I'm becoming progressively less coherent, it's because I was sitting in a parking lot at a temperature about minus 10 here in Toronto, while Brando was sitting comfortably by the fire, probably sipping some tea. Um, Anyways, without further ado, here is episode 2 of the Paradox PT Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Brando, how's it going, buddy? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Sitting here on a, a snowy Saturday morning on the West Coast. You can't uh, can't complain. I got my wood stove going. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful sight out there. How about you? I'm good, man. I'm, uh, I'm feeling better. Recovered from the COVID, so that's a, that's a positive. That That is so crazy. So you and I recorded our first podcast, basically, uh, what would you say, uh, the day of symptom onset for you? Um, it was the day before, I think. Or, no, no, no. It was the day of symptom onset. Yeah, it was that evening that I came down with a little bit of a sore throat. So so somehow we were like, you know, four feet away from each other talking into the same laptop. And, and you, you never came down with symptoms? Not a single one. Not a single one. You know what was crazy is we were, so we did the podcast, but we also did all that, uh, that manual therapy work. And I remember laying on the bench while you were uh, showing me some cervical spine um techniques and I remember like a little bit of spit came from your mouth and landed on my upper lip and like (laughs) I didn't say anything but I closed like I closed my mouth and just like didn't want to breathe for a second you know what I mean I was thinking you know what like it's so funny too you know you travel across the country and you know because we're such good friends you you think ah whatever you know you let your guard down a bit and yeah man it, so as soon as you got covid i thought i said i'm getting it you know for sure for sure i i figured as well i mean the night prior i blew out all the birthday candles right and then it was like you have a piece of cake you have a piece of cake you have a piece of cake oh i so, forgot about the birthday candles yeah, God knows how, you know, the whole crew didn't get it, but it is what it is, right? It's crazy. Um, so none, none of your folks, like none of my family got it. Yeah, no, my family was totally fine. It was just, just Lara, just, just me and Lara. Oh, that's just incredible, you know? Yeah, yeah. But feeling good since? Um, feeling good. Yeah, it was about 36 hours of flu-like symptoms, and then I was, I was on the road to recovery, and did my isolation and I've been back to work, got back in the clinic on, on Wednesday. And yeah, here we are on, on Saturday now, taking a bit of time to, to, to chat. And, and, uh, yeah. How, how was your kind of reintroduction to the clinic after Christmas? Been busy? Yeah. You know, over the holidays, I was uh, being the new PT. I was one of the only ones around in port. Um, the rest of the physios took some time off. So I had a really, really busy week, but, um, you know, comparing both my clinics in two kind of different locations, um, 
or two different communities, it seems like there's a pretty good lull period, like, you know, through Christmas, through the holidays, obviously with all the snow that we're getting on the West Coast, and then, uh, you know, with the, the new and improved Omicron. Um, so, yeah, it, it seems like there's a bit of a, bit of a dip um, in the demand. But what about you guys back east? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, ups and downs. I mean, I would say January typically is quieter because people try to burn through their benefits in December. <laughs> um, just the reality of it. And then, you know, we're pretty heavily locked down right now. So that can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing, you know, because it's a good thing for, for, for business for us because people have really nothing else to do. So they don't miss their physio appointments. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people that are very hesitant. And with the cases being where they're at, a lot of people are, are, are just hunkering down and staying in. So... Yeah, it's uh, ups and downs of private practice, man. No, totally true, totally true. You know, it's it's, it's so crazy, too, because, you know, you work really hard uh, maybe one or two days a week, and then uh, you have this, like, this this lull. Um, and the lull kind of feels nice, but, you know, kind of recover from the, the busier days of the, the earlier week. But, um, you know, when you're not constantly seeing patients, it actually it reflects quite a bit on the whole paycheck, doesn't it? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you kind of have to budget for months that are slow. You know, you have certain months that are really, really good. And then you're like, okay, like this is my annual income based on that calculation. And then it's like, okay, maybe not. (laughs) Oh, so true. That's grounds for another podcast is how the heck do you keep track of all your billing as a a subcontractor? Because it is not an easy feat, you know? Yeah, yeah, honestly, that that would be a good podcast to do to go just here. Honestly, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. But um, but today, uh, I guess the plan was to chat about whether to focus on pain or function in rehab. Um, You know, when to focus on one to the exclusion of the other, when focusing on one detracts from the other. Um, Are they two things that you can uh, you can kind of work on simultaneously? And uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on on whether you take a, a very pain-focused approach to rehab or a very function-focused approach. And yeah, I figured it would make for some interesting conversations. So what do you think, Bran? Absolutely. Where do you going to go with it? Absolutely. Well, why don't, why don't I start off by even just juxtaposing my the, the two clinics that I'm working for here. Um, one of the clinics is really more kind of... Uh, you want to say like geriatric slash longevity type care. Um, and their whole business model is to take away somebody's pain. Like that that's why they're in business. And the clinic owner is very, very adamant on the whole reason that the client is coming to see you is because they are in pain and they no longer want to be in pain. Um, and it kind of sets this tone that if you can't change their pain or if you can't improve their pain in, in one session, that you're somehow failing, uh, failing not only the, the, the client, but the, the business. Um, and it's breeding this sort of anxiety, like this, this performance type anxiety for me that I think that is just, uh, one, unfair, and two, just not possible to solve, um, and not possible to solve from a physio standpoint, but even any any standpoint and any healthcare professional can offer, especially after one session. Um, so juxtapose mm-hmm. that to, to, to my uh, my clinic in town here where that's not the sole goal is to, to change your pain, right? It's, it's, it's overall improvement, right? Um, and I think that mm-hmm. from this perspective, it seems to me that we shouldn't be in the business solely of removing people's pain because a lot of the time it's not possible. I would say maybe, I don't know, maybe not most of the time, but 
in, in my limited experience so far, it, it, is not, uh, it is not the most easy feat to try to conquer. Um, and I think that if you were to go down that, that whole aspect of we have to change somebody's pain, um, that you're just going to get burnt out and frustrated yourself as a, as a clinician. And I think you're going to just disappoint your client by setting those expectations uh, uh, early on. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can totally relate to the feeling of um, anxiety around getting somebody out of pain in like session one, session two, uh, and, and if it doesn't move in that direction immediately, kind of getting having some self-doubt creep in, like am I doing the right things, um, do I have the right diagnosis, um, just what am I doing here, uh, and and yeah, I, it's it's tricky, right, because pain is, is one of those really multi-dimensional phenomena I mean it's one of the most complex things that, um, that that we have as part of the human experience and and it can both be influenced by so many different things um, and um, <clears throat> so it's kind of like nothing works but everything works when it comes to pain you know <laughs> when you look at the like a lot of the data we have uh, it, it doesn't show like that we have a silver bullet for for pain relief but having said that pain can be influenced by so many different factors that um, we have a lot of avenues to to play with uh, like one, one of my favorite studies which shows kind of the plasticity of pain I don't know if you, you heard about this one it was like a Lorimer Mosley study who's fantastic by the way and, and they basically they put a cold object on people's arm and half the group um, are, are basically looking at a, a, a I think it was they're shown a red light and the other half of the group is shown a blue light and the people who see the red light rate the um, the stimulus as twice as painful as those who see the blue light and just to illustrate that pain can be so uh, powerfully influenced by our beliefs and our expectations and it's slippery and it's hard to get a handle on and I think all that's to say that if you if you make your practice solely focused on pain then um, it's a little bit harder to hang your hat on your interventions based on the evidence whereas when I focus on function I know that I can help somebody walk up the stairs you know what I mean whereas if I just have them on their back and doing manual therapy like maybe I can get their pain to go away maybe I can't but that Anyways, I'm getting too far into the weeds here, but what do you, what do you, what do you think about that? No, ab absolutely. And I like how you, you said even just the, the power of your psychology with pain, right? Like the whole notion if you see a red light or a blue light, and it kind of ties into, like, what are we selling here? Like, are we selling what is true, or what are, are we selling something that I can make you believe something that something isn't true? And it's kind of like the pharmaceutical companies, right? Like how they make antidepressants blue and not red. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like this trickery on our minds. Yeah. And maybe that's an important part of rehab or an important part of medicine. Um, but I think to act ethically, you, you should focus on things that, one, you can record, and two, you know are true. Uh, and there's nothing more real than somebody who, you know, can't ambulate the stairs and then over the course of a week and a half can. And they come back to you and say, holy smokes, like, my, my, my mobility has improved tenfold. Um, you know, thank you. You know, and, and that kind of brings me into this whole umbrella of, I was trying to, to sort, sort through this was... Why should we focus on function, and, and when should we focus on function? And I think, I think an umbrella term um, is we should focus more on function than pain when we're dealing with any type of chronic condition. Um, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll let you have your way with that. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's really good. Uh, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking was that like a lot of the painful conditions we treat have a favorable natural history. And whether or not 
we do manual therapy or exercise or wave gems or say prayers or whatever it is, uh, a lot of the times the pain will get better independent of what we do. And so the question for me then is, um, where, do, where, where, where does my client come out after the intervention? Do they come out more fragile and overprotecting the area and feeling like they're not confident to move? And that's where you move into that kind of chronic pain where it becomes a sort of more of an overprotection issue as opposed to an acute tissue damage problem. Or, or if, we, if we try to keep them robust from day one, and get them moving and teach them that uh, they're not fragile. Um, maybe they come out of that, like that natural history where the pain just goes away, but they're a lot stronger and they haven't had this kind of secondary deconditioning that might have happened if we just kind of treated them with passive techniques. Totally, totally agree. And that kind of comes back to my initial point of how do you build your business model in physio? Is like if you're focused around removing people's pain, what type of physio are you going to offer these people? Right? Like, are, are you going to get them loading? Are you going to get them moving? Are you going to get them pushing themselves? Are you going to get them in a state of, I need to protect this, or in a state of, I need to adapt to this? And I think that when you solely deal with pain, you, you can't push your client to overcome. Uh, you can only play within the confounds of what they find painful. And what everybody finds painful is different, right? So it kind of breeds a sort of ambiguity of, Okay, like my last client said that was too painful to do, um, but they did it anyway. And this client says, well, it's too painful to do, but really this new client is, is showing half or experiencing half the level of pain as my prior client, but my, for whatever reason my prior client is willing to do things, well, this one isn't, right? So it's like there's no way to track it for one. Uh, and then for two, like if you can do it and it's not going to hurt you, but it's a little bit painful, you, you probably should do it. Obviously there's, there's conditions that exclude that, but I haven't come across very many. I feel like people are... are... When, when, sorry, just to kind of cut you off there. When would you say you, you wouldn't push into any pain with exercise? Like, are there any yeah. clear, clearly defined so, kind of boundaries there? So, you know, there, there's conditions that have come into even just in my last few weeks of practice. One, some rheumatological type conditions where I, I think that pushing through pain and during like a flare-up, let's say, is probably ill-advised because the flare-up hopefully will pass. Uh, and then we can get to, to, to moving then. Um, and you kind of, I can juxtapose it with an easier condition like osteoarthritis, right? When you have just a painful knee that you just don't feel mm -hmm. like bending. And like, I think those, although both are conditions of a joint, are two different situations where pain should guide you and pain shouldn't guide you. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I would add to that uh, radicular pain. In my experience, you don't really get great results by pushing into pain. Um, you just flare people up. You know, um, and maybe the other situations would be like a, you know, kind of a post-op, really uh, acute situation. Um, but yeah, no, I know I totally agree. I cut you off there though, and I, where, where, where exactly were you headed with that last point? I got, I got invested into this new part of the conversation, so I, I, I regretfully don't know. Um, okay, well, hold on. Let me, um, let me uh, try to bring us back on track. My, so like, we were kind of talking about. In chronic, in chronic conditions, that's when maybe you'd um, you'd focus more on function because at that point, like pain, maybe doesn't equate as directly with tissue damage. Like, do do we agree with that? Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I I agree with that. I, I think that um, like, like that whole notion that hurt doesn't always have to equal harm, um, and it kind of brings us into that whole fear avoidance model, right? Like, if we have um, an acute injury that 
doesn't resolve and all we do is protect it and immobilize it and are fearful of it, then we kind of enter into this vicious negative feedback loop or positive feedback loop rather of, uh, of the fact that when it hurts that I, I shouldn't move it because I'm doing further damage. Um, and I think yeah. that's only going to make us worse off. I think it's going to, we're going to start removing the things that we love doing. We're, we're not going to in, in, engage in any sort of activity that can cause it grief. And even if those activities are something as simple as getting up and, and cooking breakfast. And I think we just get far too reliant on other people at that, mm-hmm. at that stage. And um, we just create this narrative for ourselves that we're broken and there's nothing that we can do about it. And I think that's just such a, a, a poor way to look at the world. Yeah, 100%. So like, as much as it's hard to have a recipe for treating pain, I could pretty much give you a recipe for developing chronic pain. <laughs> so you have an acute injury, uh, you overprotect that injury, and you, you never load it. Uh, you avoid all the activities that, you know, that a pain is kind of keeping you from. And, and then you become weaker. And then you, you lose capacity within the joints and the muscles and the soft tissues in that area. Um, and then you develop, like you said, this sort of like what they call kinesiophobia, or just fear of movement. And we know that, like I'd say, the probably the best modern conceptualization of pain is as a threat detection mechanism. So our body will put pain somewhere when we don't feel safe. And so if we if we don't like if we if we kind of go into that cycle of avoiding, 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 and we never expose ourselves into those painful situations, we can develop that sort of um, threat sensitivity very rapidly and it can get heightened and uh so yeah i I completely uh completely agree with you and i think that's like that's how you develop chronic pain and i think focusing on function and rehab is really uh us trying to prevent some of those cases that are acute from becoming chronic because i'll tell you if you demonize certain movements and positions um full stop like let's say somebody's sensitive to lumbar flexion and you initially you teach them to hip hinge, which is great. Like, and it's so it's, it's an avoidance strategy. But you, but they, you don't couch that with the narrative that listen. Once you're out of this acute sensitive period, like lumbar flexion's fine. Mm-hmm. Then that person develops a total pathological fear of movement, and and that's when they can become a chronic pain patient, where they're so rigid and their back muscles are always in spasm because they're always always worried about like the positioning of, you know, not not being in the wrong. Uh, posture and so yeah yeah uh, I'll, I'll pass it back to you there it, no totally totally and, and I think that and, and coming back to my point too of, of this, this whole business model of, of um, not selling to your clients that we're only here to take you out of pain is we were talking about a little bit what type of physio are you going to receive um, and especially in, in, in my retirement community that I'm serving is, is a lot of the treatment that the clinic wants them to receive are, are, are treatments that, one, don't have great research for, and two, just kind of make you temporarily feel nice. And I think that if you just temporarily want to feel nice, then you shouldn't spend money on physiotherapy, right? You could spend money doing something that is far more enjoyable. Um, so it, it creates this clinic that is structured solely around providing nice treatment, not, not efficacious treatment. And it, yeah. when you see that, it's like it, it kind of, it just, especially being early on in your career, it just it really hurts the heart. Um, and then, you know, it's sometimes justified in this notion that, oh, you know, people usually get better uh, just with time anyhow. But that's no way to reconcile it. Um, well, and, and, and are, are you just making them more fragile on the other end of it? And do they feel like dependent on your, your passive intervention, which they don't, Maybe they might not even need it anyways. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. 
So I, I think that hmm. with that, but you, you do have some times where you don't need to push through the pain, right? Like, and, and I think this maybe relates to the different types of pain that we have. Like as we were kind of saying earlier on, there's this more acute pain, this chronic pain. There's, you were saying, you know, radicular and referred type pains. But there's also like emotional pain, you know, and like like psychologically generated pain. Um, and, I, you know, like I've done a little bit of light reading around like the, the whole enteric nervous system and the connection with that or even just like an amygdala response um, or, or people who suffer from mental illness, anxiety and depression and having, you know, what is it, like twice the likelihood of developing chronic pain. Um, yeah. I think like though maybe some of those types of people who... Uh, don't have much resilience in their life or who suffer from these types of comorbidities, maybe they don't just need to be loaded, right? Like maybe they don't need to just push through this pain. Maybe they need some of the smoother, you know, not, I wouldn't say passive, but less, less, less invasive type physical therapies. Well, or, or I mean, I'll, I'll maybe push back on that a little bit and say maybe they need to address their pain through a different avenue. Like maybe if we think of, uh, the analogy of, of, of the cup, you know, and if when the cup overflows, you get pain and injury, like maybe you've got the, um, they're loading as one kind of, uh, layer of the cup, but then you've got the anxiety, you've got a toxic relationship, you've got poor sleep, you've got kind of an inflammatory, uh, diet and, and all these factors, stress at work. So like maybe sometimes we, we put too much pressure on ourselves to be like the arbiter of recovery when, really maybe a person would benefit more from just um spending more time with uh family and you know engaging in some meaningful activities um do you know what i mean where like maybe it's not always on us to get somebody out of pain and like maybe we can have some some impacts on those psychosocial factors kind of indirectly by giving somebody a positive experience with with movement and a and a positive uh kind of that unconditional positivity as a clinician but maybe sometimes the, those kind of peripheral avenues to address pain are actually a, a better way to go about it, you know, or are the mediators of recovery for certain people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think I have a few um, clients on my caseload right now that are just, the psychological component of their pain is just so overwhelming that exercise prescription, I don't think is going to be the kind of the bridge of the recovery. You know, I, I don't think that's going to be enough, although it would be good for them. Um, I feel like there is a subset of the population who, for whatever reason, just can't can't commit to the exercises that probably would be good for them. So I feel like in an effort not to lose them, we need to be a little bit more open-minded as, as therapists. And maybe this is where modalities or manual therapy or even just, you know, the notion of pain education science or just communicating with somebody like letting them come in for a session um, you moving their joints for them while you build rapport talk to them listen to them validate them maybe that's okay for a session you know and I, I think that what I'm doing right now is I'm having a hard time having one foot in each sort of camp and I'm feeling like I need to choose one. You know, we, we listen to people like, you know, Adam Meekins, and I, I watch his podcast a fair bit, and I think, wow, that's that's the physio that I need to be because that's, you know, one of the most uh, sci science-based type physios to be, and I want to be science-based. And and then you think, well, maybe that's not the only solution, right? Like maybe there's some sort of middle ground that I can come to where, and with relation to this podcast, that we should focus both on pain and on function. Um, 
and maybe that somewhere yeah. in the middle is an okay place to be and to, and to practice. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Like I, I'm, I'm not a hardliner on passive interventions that are, you know, clients on the table, you're, you're doing some manual work. Like I think sometimes somebody's so wound up from like a nervous system perspective that they just need to lie down and, and like breathe, you know, and maybe you, you do some manual work in conjunction with that and it just kind of winds down that, that sensitivity. But I totally agree with you. Like if you're, when you're always so focused on like, what does the evidence say like about like, what do I have an RCT to tell me that this manual therapy technique is like the best approach? Like, so, like uh, it's, um, it, it kind of hamstrings you. Like it makes it hard to, um, to, to practice because you get these people that just, they're not, you kind of have to meet them where they're at. Um, and sometimes maybe that means for a session or two doing some things that are more just like down regulating the nervous system and just calming things down um, but I think the key thing is that you eventually try to build them back up you know you don't just build kind of a dependency model of, of treatment where you need to see me three times a week for this manual therapy technique for until the end of time you know <laughs> totally true totally true and and maybe maybe that's just a, a good framework to root your practice in is is you know it's it's okay to take time with people it's okay not to deliver the most evidence-based type practice for said condition all the time because the, the, no two people are alike right and um I think that instead of beating ourselves up over the fact that, well, you know, I'm not getting this person hip hinging and deadlifting by, you know, session two, I'm not doing my job as a physio, like, like maybe we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves about that, you know, and maybe sometimes yeah. the patient reporting to you that, oh, you know, like, although I'm not doing as many exercises as I want to, and uh, I, I feel better, like, I feel a bit better, I feel, I feel good just coming in and talking to you. You know, like I, I last week yeah. I have this one patient, and, and again she suffers from like end stage OA in like both of her knees, and it was, uh, it, you know, just totally immobilized walking with a with a gait aid. Um, and the first two sessions, all we could do was get situated on a new step bike, and she could do half revolutions of the pedals, uh, and just talk yeah. to me for twenty minutes. Um, and then it would take probably fifteen minutes just to get her on and off the darn bike. And I was thinking, like, I'm kind of. I feel like I'm kind of failing you here, you know, but like she kept keep coming back in and we kept doing more and more. And, and she now is like, we've improved her range, like from probably like 40% more range in both knees. She's walking without a gait aid, like she's going to the pool, like all these amazing things that I, at the very start, I was thinking to myself, I'm kind of failing you as a physio. And now she's coming to me thinking like, Hey, like I have this, this orthopedic con uh, follow-up consult for my total knee replacement, and I, I want you to write a report for me because I'm, co I'm thinking of not getting the surgery now. And I think, wow, what a bloody win that was. And it all started yeah. with just 20 minutes doing half cycles on a recumbent bike. And I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing, right? But in the moment, I was beating myself up thinking, like, crying out loud, I, 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 I got nothing for this lady. She's just wasting her time and money to come and see me and talk to me on a, on a bike for 20 minutes. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, that's fantastic, and I think it's such a, a beautiful illustration of the fact that um, we we got to play the long game, and a big part of that is just building the relationship with the client, and you know, building some trust. And it doesn't always look like it, like you think it's gonna look for whatever given condition that you're treating. But yeah, over time, like if you build like, the, there's a reason that our, our profs would always bang on about a therapeutic alliance, right? That buzzword, yeah. it makes a, a hell of a difference. Like if you can get somebody to, to trust you and to have a relationship with you where um, there is that 
on unconditional positivity and like the difference that can have in somebody's life independent of what you do physically even if the first few sessions are just really really slow right i had a guy last week um who came in post-surgery and he just needed to tell his story so the first session we literally chatted for 45 minutes i spent a bit of extra time with him i, I, I assessed his range of motion gave him one simple intervention to go home with and to me that that's more a more successful session than if i had rushed him not listened to him and given him like five exercises to do you know what i mean because it's going to be a long recovery anyways so like building that alliance is just it's step one i think if you don't have that foundation um you know you 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 don't really uh you don't really have a a good place to move from oh it's so true and and at the end of the day like physios being like this primary healthcare providers like we're in we're in a bit of the service and people industry right like we're we're, we're frontline workers who just interact with people on their day-to-day. Um, and I think the easier time you have building rapport and building a relationship with somebody, the better of a physio you're going to be. Um, some of the nicest feedback I've ever received isn't on, it really has nothing to do with my abilities as a physical therapist, but my ability is, is to just connect with another human being. And I don't know if that's good or bad, um, but but pe- people say that <laughs> within within the first two weeks, I had one guy say that I, I uh, what the heck did he say? Mir- words like miracle worker, and I'm thinking like <laughs> like my 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 abilities as a physio are so below I think what they need to be, but why do you like me? Like why do you think that whatever we're doing here is working? And I think that it's just because that he trusts me, and we we've built this uh, relationship predicated on mutual respect, opposed to some sort of a power differential between clinician and patient. You know, like I, I think that the more you can just treat people as human beings and, and be there for them, like as you would be for your spouse or partner, uh, the better of a mm-hmm. clinician that you're going to be. Um, and, you know, brings it back to a saying that I, I really follow is like, they're not going to care what you know unless they know how much you care. Um, and if there's one thing that I really strive to do, especially after an initial assessment, is to, to just make them, not make them, but enable them to understand that I care for them and that I'm in their corner. Yeah, yeah, no, that's beautifully put. Um, having had a, played a role in, in mentoring some students over the past year, that, that was one thing that I, I constantly harped on was um, treat them as a human first. Like uh, when, when you see on your schedule, oh, lateral epicondylalgia or, you know, I've got sciatica or whatever it is, that immediately the student would spend time researching that condition and it's obviously so important but then they'd get in the assessment and you treat the patient like this um like a case in a textbook and it like it's worth spending the time to ask them like get to know their life like what do they like to do in their in their life get to know the names of their kids you know build an actual relationship with them and then they'll trust your, your advice right but if you just come in without building that rapport and you say you need to do x y and z and uh, i've just I, I feel like it doesn't work as well. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Brando. It's all about treating them as a human first. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, why don't Why don't we circle back to a little bit of the some of the conditions where I think that um, pain does. You know, I, I, there's one I was thinking really, really hard, and I actually proposed this in physio school, and people thought that it was absolutely ridiculous. But I feel like there's one condition. Um, and it's not just one pathology. It's a. It's more of a, a, a sub. You know, an, again, an umbrella term for multiple conditions. That I think that pain doesn't really matter at all when you're when you're uh, working with patients as a physical therapist. And 
again, I, I'm not adamant on this and I'm totally open to change, but in my estimation so far, I feel like when you work with palliative patients, I feel like pain shouldn't even really be much in the conversation. Um, mm. And people think that's a bit crazy, but you know, if, you, if, if you're down to, let's say your last month or your last few weeks of life and you know, a lot in the hospital, you know, I worked with a fair bit of palliative patients and you, know, you had this conversation with them and they're just in so much pain and their, their pain, there's nothing that you can really do to change it, right? They're on the highest dose of, dose of morphine or, or fentanyl or whatever, whatever they're taking. Um, so there's nothing you can do as a physio to change their pain really. Um, but they have goals in mind, right? There, there's things that they want to do. Um, and the goals don't have to be anything crazy. And I, I, one, one patient simply just wanted to be able to sit up in bed and, and have like a, a breakfast with their family. Um, and again, we, weeks to live, right? So you think, well, I know it's going to hurt if we try to do a little bit of abdominal work or leg raises or anything to just like develop your, your even like your erector spine, yeah. right? Like it's going to be a little bit painful. But if we just practice this and find positions that you can erect yourself in to have a, a sit-down meal with your family, that's that's probably the most important thing to focus on. And is it going to hurt? Yeah, yeah it's it's going to hurt. Yeah, but does it matter in that moment? I, I don't. Again. I'm open to change, but in this moment, I don't. I don't quite think so. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I love that, and I think um, sometimes, like, that's a nice way to frame it. E- even if pain doesn't change at all, and it's still there, if 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 we're getting able, like, if we're, if we're getting people back to doing what they love, that's a win. Like, even if they're still in pain, you know what I mean? Because they typically will have come to you not really just because they're in pain, but because the pain's impeding their life in some way. Like it's getting in the way of some activity that they want to do. And even if the pain is still present um, and it's not fully gone away, if we can get them to the point where they're able to, to cope with it and do what they love to do, like that's, that's beautiful. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. Right. And I, I, I look at occupational therapy as a, as a really like a shining light here where like they just focus on function. It's like, I, I don't know where in physiotherapy we got so obsessed with just just modulating pain, but like OTs, when you're in the hospital, it's all about the daily like ADLs, activities of daily living. Like, yep. how do we train somebody to be better prepared for their life? And shifting from from preparation, uh, or sorry, to preparation from kind of just a, a you know pain sensitivity framework is like that. That was the the shift for me that I think allowed me to. Uh, it really helped me avoid burnout in practice because, yeah, I was, I was getting really, uh, really caught up in oh, if they're not, if their pain score hasn't gone down by three points this week, like, gonna have to reevaluate everything. But if you frame it as oh no, your pain is the same this week, but you went for a six k walk instead of a two k walk with the same amount of pain, like that's progress. Amen. And it's objective, like, and it's the same for everybody, right? Like six, it doesn't have to be six kilometers, but doubling the amount of kilometers you walk is is the same for everybody, right? No matter no matter who's walking. Um, but when you say like my pain was reduced from an eight to a six, uh, everyone's interpretation of that scale is different, right? And 
it's funny because I, some of the people that I have in clinic, the the first thing they'll they'll tell me is, oh, I got the I have the biggest pain threshold that you've ever you ever, you ever did see, <laughs> and a lot of the times yeah. the people who tell me that are often the most reluctant to move and to tap into pain. So how do you feel yeah. about the pain scale? Do you do you feel like it's um, do you think that it's a it's well standardized and and reliable? No. <laughs> in short, I, I I would say it can help to give people like a frame of reference and, and show them like what five is. Like sometimes I'll say like five would be about a bee sting because people like, will say, oh, my pain's a seven or an eight, but they walk in, they have no grimace on their face. Like I don't think they really understand what like a, what a 10 is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't, I mean, I'll, I'll use it for people who, if I think we have a good standardized understanding of what it is, but I, I've moved away from from even using it that much really like i feel like you can kind of get a sense just based on like like physically examining somebody of how much pain they're in like obviously like there's some people that can really hold a poker face mm-hmm. um but often the numbers are super misleading mm-hmm. what, do, what do you do in practice you know i when i first started and again i'm only on week six now but my first week i i was becoming <laughs> exhausted because that was no matter what somebody was doing, I was always checking in, like, is this causing you pain? Pain, pain, like questioning, like, are you in pain? Are you in pain today? You know, how's your pain? And it just, it just gets so tiring, right? Because um, a lot of these people have been in pain for a very, very long time. And like, what, what do I expect after, you know, like seeing them for a week? Like, do I expect that they're going to be out of it? So I was almost disappointed when they said, you know, no, I you know, still have pain. So... I slowly yeah. stepped away from that, but where, and I only have a few examples, and I think that you mentioned like the whole sort of like ridiculous pain. I feel like in, inquiring yeah. about that is important, and I think that maybe just from if it's centralizing or peripheralizing, like I feel like that's a yes. important time to ask that question. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it depends on the on the condition and and the patient. If it's kind of this like. Oh, chronic neck office worker neck pain. Uh, it's, not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But if it's like raging, ridiculous pain, like if the intensity is decreased or the uh, the location has decreased or starting to centralize, like that's an info that's critical to uh, to understand. And and obviously, it's I mean, for students that are listening, like it it is critical to take like a good account of where it's at throughout the day. And we're not saying to to completely just shove. Um, like the pain numeric rating scale out, out, out of your practice. But I think it's probably maybe what we're getting at is that it's uh, you don't need to like, like it's not always reliable mm-hmm. maybe is one point. And then the other point is that focusing it, focusing on that to the exclusion of focusing on other outcomes is probably not good. It's so true. Um, and you know, I, I had this funny thought that it, the pain in like the 21st century isn't like true, true pain, almost like hunger. Uh, in this day and age isn't the same as actually being hungry you know like we don't even really know what hunger is because food is so bloody abundant to us like maybe maybe pain is the same like we we focus on these little aches and pains because our health is in we're in such good health and the world is in, in such good order that we can you know complain about Again, I find it funny to say, but like you know, if if a, if a runner on uh, ran f- on her forty fourth kilometer of her marathon says she's developing two of ten medial knee pain and comes to see you to try to change that, it's like that's crazy to me. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like I feel like we should normalize pain, right? Like I feel like most people have some pain on the day to day, and I feel like that should be okay. 
just like being hungry yeah. is okay. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think you can see like different types of clients, some people who have a, a really mature perspective on it where they're like, oh, yeah, like I'm feeling a little bit of pain, but I'm fine to keep going. And and then you have other people who like at the first um, sensation of any sort of discomfort, um, they pull back from doing whatever it is they're doing. And, and I think that's a really key distinction to make when we're talking about when to poke into pain versus when not to is um, splitting your like trying to determine whether your client is what they call in the research like an endurance coper or an avoidance coper mm. are those ter terms that you ha kind of have in your your lexicon yeah yeah and that and that exactly goes into that whole fear avoidance model that i was mentioning earlier yes yeah so if you know if somebody i have you know i have plenty of clients who if i tell them to do exercises they will do them they will push through that pain um, and then they're flared up the next week and then I got to, okay, this person's an endurance coper. I got to be a, a lot clearer on, you know, the pain thresholds that are acceptable here. Whereas there are certain people who are just, yeah, like I said, they, you know, they run at the, at the first, um, at the first feeling they get, like they just, they, they can't, can't handle it. So I think that's a helpful framework to, to have when you're deciding whether to expose or uh, avoid. No, absolutely, absolutely. And I, while you were talking about that, I, I just Googled that figure. And I think the figures, there's a reference here for, I think it's Weidman et al. in 2013. And yeah, he, he, he put this fear avoidance model up that, like you said, you have this, this injury. And this is me just reading off of this model. Um, so you, <laughs> you have injury and then you have this pain experience because of it. And then you kind of have that fork in the road, right? You have the people who don't confront it with fear who they just confront it and then recover from it. Or you have people who catastrophize about it, um, have that pain-related fear, and then avoid it, and then they have this disuse, depression, disability, and then just that full circle of back in pain, catastrophize some more, avoid it some more, you know, be, be more disabled, be more depressed over it, and just you, it just keeps going. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Um... Yeah, and, and that's, that's I think, why it's, man, like, you've got to focus on function from day one. Like, you want to avoid that, you want to avoid that cycle. Oh. Um, and, you know, one, one of the things that popped into my mind as you were talking is, uh, like, exercise can be an analgesic, too. So it's not like focusing on pain versus fo focusing on function are these two, um, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that you can, you can focus on somebody's function and impact their pain at the same time you know what I mean totally um, uh, we, we know that there's a lot of there's central mechanisms in terms of like endogenous opioid release from the um, you know at the level of the the cortical structures kind of descending inhibition you have a, at the level of the spinal cord this kind of modulation of, of sensitivity and like pain thresholds and then you have at the periphery like the actual tissue so there's all these like an exercise can affect any one of those different areas um, so yeah, I, I would say, man, it's when we talk about getting somebody out of acute pain and modifying symptoms, I can do that through movement, like through a breathing drill or through getting their, like somebody has knee pain. I have this hamstring bridge drill. I really like where I, I kind of, I get them co-contracting their calf and their hamstring by, um, their forefoot on like a foam roller. Mm. And often like, I'll just get them to do 20 seconds of that. And they stand up and they're like, oh, my knee doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> okay, well, we didn't massage you. We didn't put needles into you. We didn't do anything um, hands-on. Like, all, all that we did there was show your knee, show your nervous system that you're safe. 
by kind of giving you some support in and around the joint. So I think often, um, yeah, just like that's why that's why my bias is to focus on function, and and that's why my bias as a therapist is to is to focus on movement yeah. and, and active stuff, is because it, it can you know, can kill uh, two birds with one stone, right? Totally, and I think that reconciles this basically those 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 two different. Um, what do you call it? You know, we, at the start, we kind of make it mutually exclusive, right? We say pain or function. Yeah, but, but that's, that's, the, what I was, that's, that's the term I was looking for. <laughs> totally, totally. And, and like, I think it's like, referred to as like exercise-induced hypoalgesia, right? Like that's the whole notion yep. of it. And there's many ways of getting there, right? Like aerobic exercise, um, resistance training. Um, so multiple ways to that, to, that same, to that same end. But while focusing on that function, while getting them to exercise, you, you kill kill two birds with one stone, right? And you, you combat the pain and you improve the function. I think that's a, it's a damn good win-win. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm a hundred percent with you. What do you, what do you think of the whole notion that pain is just in the brain? Well, it's, it's, it's not just in the brain. So we know that pain is, is an output from it's rather than an input, right? So that's a big phase shift that I think like a lot of lay people do have the the conception that you know pain is is a, a representation of tissue damage you know if my back hurts something is injured in my back but we know from the literature that pain is more of a um, it reflects more the perception of, of threat really mm-hmm. and you can you can make like the Laura Mosley's experiments honestly are like the best way of uh, looking into this he has a great TED talk um, which is worth really worth listening to where he just goes through all these studies where they can, you know, give people like a VR headset and, or sorry, not a, yeah. Like they, they give people these, these goggles, which make them look at themselves kind of from the outside. And then they touch, um, the person's arm and they can get the person to, to point to where it hurts, but they point on the other, like in, in, in the middle of the room, like not on their arm, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, I'm not explaining that well, but, but, pain is 100% an, an output from the brain. And, and so I, I think the biggest thing like with patients, I never say your pain is in your head, like your pain is in your nervous system. Uh-huh. And there, there's um, something here, whether it be actual legitimate tissue damage or kind of a, an overprotection, um, uh, your, your brain has concluded that you should, like it's put pain there for a reason. Maybe that reason is because the tissue actually needs to heal or, Maybe the reason is because, um, you know, it, it just it, it, it doesn't feel safe, in, in which case maybe we do need to expose. And so that's another, I mean, that's the art of being a physio is figuring out when you're in uh, the former situation versus the latter, right? Mm-hmm, totally. And I like how you well, classified that, you know, like pain just isn't in your brain, but it is in your nervous system. Like, I, I feel like that is so true because we spend so much time learning about, like, the difference between either peripheral or central um, sensitization, right, and the different mechanisms by by both, um, but combining them and just saying that you know it, it's in our periphery, right? It's it's in the sensor receptors, um, and it's also in our brain. Like I, I feel like you can never have one without the other. Um, it's just it, it would be yeah. interesting to see if if you didn't if you didn't quite need. Well, you're always going to need a central nervous system to, to interpret pain. Yeah, I, was going to, like I, oh, I don't think you can have pain without a brain, you know? <laughs> no, a, amen to that. But I was just thinking, like, even, even you think at the level of, like, the peripheral nervous system, right? Like, can you have a peripheral nerve? Like, like, like let's say referred pain from an organ, 
right? Like you, you, yeah. you have to, you have to cross the spinal cord, right? It, or it's just the pathway won't be complete. But does it have to go mm -hmm. up to all of the, like, like the thalamic sensory type processing up in the brain, or can it be dealt with at the level in the spinal cord? You know, and again, this is me thinking way, way the heck back. But do you remember that, like, at, yeah. the, at the level of that dorsal root ganglion, how you can have um, the, the two directional firing, like that orthodromic, antidromic, you know? Yeah. Orthodromic impulses. And, and yeah. although that's the central nervous system, the spinal cord is definitely not the brain, right? The, the complex, complexity of nuclei is seriously not the same. But y yeah. y you think like may maybe like the spinal cord can interpret pain for us. Like and that's how reflexes work, right? Like that That's how reflexes work. I was just going to say, I mean, we do have those built-in things that we don't have to have any cognitive resources devoted to. They just happen, you know, when our uh, tendons get stretched and et cetera, et cetera, right? So true. So true. Uh, yeah, interesting. Interesting yeah. thought. Interesting thought. Um, and that kind of yeah. But I mean, man, pain is there's like when you talk about all the different sites at which it can be modulated, it it gets overwhelming. You know. Mm, <laughs> so true. It is so true. Um, and you think of the like the the the, uh, the description of, you know the phantom phantom limb pain, right? Like I feel like like that is right. such a nice representation over like nociception does does not equal pain. You, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> or like the whole paper cut phenomena, you know, like why, why does that little bugger hurt so bad? Yeah. Yeah. No, Hey, a hundred percent, man. It's, um, yeah, it's so, uh, it's so messy, but the phantom limb pain is a, is a beautiful representation of the fact that when you don't have an arm and your arm hurts, <laughs> you know, we can pretty well say that it's not related to tissue damage. Oh, you know? So true. So true. Um, it's strange though, man. It's, uh, I, I just think of, I think I've had a, a few, um, ridiculous pain patients lately and the, the sensations they get in their body, the sensation of ants crawling on their back or like mm. water trickling. And it's just, uh, it's so fascinating the way the brain and the nervous system, uh, f forms this conception of, you know, what's going on in the external world. And, um, nerve pain itself because it's just such a i mean we should probably do a whole episode on on the complexities of nerve pain it would be good to kind of look into the literature on it mm -hmm. no totally 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 yeah so what what else is on your mind here when we when we think about pain and function is there anything uh anything that you want to add like or like what 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 uh what are we missing um you know i i think that for people who are listening, you know, I, I feel like there there are, are some conditions that we've outlined that are really important to just revisit and highlight that, honestly, that the less you focus on pain, the better. And I think that, like you were saying, that maybe that a majority of pathologies, that's a good stance to take. Because if you do that, you get them moving and you get this sort of exercise-induced hypoalgesia and you get this increase in function. Um, but I, I, I'd love to just talk about the whole the arthritic joint for a little bit you know jake just spend some time with uh, giving me your experiences because i'm seeing a lot of like the whole um physician fear mongering bone on bone type of yeah. uh representation clinic right now and to try to find ways and narratives to one undo the damage of the physician by you know scaring them uh, and it's really tough i found as a physio to to tell patients information that it doesn't concur with their family doctor that is actually yeah. true from my perspective. Like I find that of being a very challenging feat. Um, and maybe that's just yeah. like the whole white coat phenomenon, right? Um, but do you have any tools that you've been using to, especially with arthritis, you know, like, like knees and hips, I think right. those are the two, the two big ones. Uh, what, what do you do? 
Well, I mean, the first thing is that I try not to be combative at all in terms of, you know, contradicting what the GP has told them. Um, I think that's a really good way to build um, distrust right right off the get-go. Uh, but I think the biggest thing, man, is showing them that they're robust through uh, giving them an, an opportunity to, um, you know, to do things with their body that they may not have thought was was available to them. You know, like I don't think telling somebody that, you know, you're not going to hurt your knee by bending it is going to reduce their pain. Like you need to actually put them in a, like in a context, find a, a regression that's basic enough that they can manage it. Like as Craig uh, Liebenson says, he's a brilliant um, Cairo. Um, he's like, find the hardest thing they do well, and then and then show them how robust they are. Because once somebody has kind of taken on board that like hurt equals harm, until you show them. Um, that they can do things they didn't think they could do. I think you're fighting a losing battle, and and we've seen that with the the research on pain education. Like if you like just reading pain education pamphlets isn't helpful for patient care. Like it doesn't help. And and, to, and initially I was like, when I saw that data, I was like, oh, that's annoying because I I've spent all this time like, kind of looking into pain science and how to deliver key messages of pain science. But you know now that I've had a bit more experience, it totally makes sense because. People learn through through like somatic experience with their body. They don't just intellectualize something and then change. Like, does that does that make sense to you? Totally true. And you know what? I th I think the the best takeaway from that is like don't create that that sort of that that combat off the hop. Like don't try to trump. Don't try to disprove. Show them. Like and that's kind of like the art of physio, right? Like because. Science says one thing, and you can just get go and prate around and talk about you know the, the science of arthritis or how a movement is going to replenish the synovial fluid, which is going to in turn help the cartilage or whatever the heck you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. But if you just show them that they can do these movements that they're scared of and change that, I feel like that is the the impactful lesson to learn, right? And then <laughs> they're going to go home and move it some more and think, wow, you know, like this guy really knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and then you know it depends on the patient. If if there's somebody who seems um, interested in like reading research and are there's somebody who's educated and are really either trying to do a deep dive on on understanding their own body I'll send them like a, a paper on you know the prevalence of asymptomatic pathology in our in, in like the knee joint if they have knee pain and um, you know and just show them that okay listen like this guy isn't just uh, you know creating his points out of thin air like he's evidence-based and he has some papers that can back things up and obviously for the majority of people they don't they're not interested in that, but like I have done that with good effect for for a few clients where you can get in a discussion about the evidence and and that's great, but um, it has to be coupled by by demonstrating that they're they're robust. Yeah, I mean it's like um, yeah, graded exposure, right? You you don't if you're uh, if you're scared of anything, you need to physically expose yourself to it. You can't just think about it and intellectualize it. Yeah. Oh, so true. So true. Um, do, do you ever use the, um, is it, is it like that pain radar plot um, as a part of your analysis for treatment plans or for, um, you know, like the, the whole, um, the, the, the plot that's like differentiates between like, is their pain coming from nociception or from their physiology or from rather like their social aspects or their, you know, their central nervous system opposed to the peripheral nervous system and all that kind of, all that kind of jazz. <laughs> I try to to distinguish between like nociceptive pain um, and and maybe like more just 
like sensitization, but I, I wouldn't say I'm very good at distinguishing between like peripheral versus central sensitization. And I don't, I'm, I don't have like all the, the scales and, you know, the questionnaires integrated in my practice to be, uh-huh. to be really dialed in on that. Um, but, you know, I would say I, I try to differentiate between, you know, neurogenic pain versus referred, somatic referred pain um, versus, you know, local, like it's, it's, it's tough, but, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I I think there's limits to how much we can do. What do you, what do you what do you do? It, it sounds a little bit on the hokey side, but I, I do it like intuitively. You know what I mean? Like I, I just I try to like paint this picture of this person like from the moment that I see them. You know, and like I people people will tell you almost like how to treat them just by talking to you. You know, like if, yeah. if you just care enough to listen. Um, but like you, like I know there's all these bloody scales, like the pain catastrophizing scale that you could give them and score it and then put this plot but no i i just i just listen to them and i watch them um and a lot of the time like their actions speak louder than their words you know what i mean like oh like it's like the whole phenomena like my shoulder hurts i'm i can't bend it this way that way but like they can put their coat on just fine and get like perfect internal rotation they're like oh yeah okay um yeah so you can kind of take a bit of a different approach but uh no i I don't i don't do a lot of the like the uh, of the, the the screening measures and uh, there's one that I do yeah, use. I it's it, the patient-specific functional scale, and I think that's pretty cool. But it, it boils back to function, right? Like it's it's less to do with pain. It's like you know, yeah. from zero to ten, how 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 able do you feel to do your tasks? I think that one's pretty good. Yeah, I, I I'm a I'm a huge fan of that one. Simple. Um, I, I will say it's it's funny. Uh, Mark Laslet, who's a cluster of Laslet for the SIJ, right? He um, he does the central sensitization inventory on all of his back pain patients. And then if they score above a certain threshold, he just doesn't treat them. He just sends them down the road to some, he's like, I'm not a pain therapist. Mm. I'm somebody, I'm a diagnostician. If you have a pathology, I can identify, I'm going to triage you into the, you know, but he's like, I don't deal with uh, chronic kind of centrally sensitized people. It's just, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so over time, I'm sure that, you know, we'll kind of refine our, our approach on, on these things. Totally, totally true. And I think like with the, the aging population too, I feel like function is more important than ever. (laughs) You know, I feel, I feel it's inevitable, you know, we're, as we get older, we're just going to experience more and more pain. Um, so try to find tools to just continue doing the things that we love doing, um, and to negotiate with our, with our aging bodies. I think that's a, that's a, that's a good relationship to form. Yeah, man. And honestly, like inactivity right now is, is an epidemic. And, um, yeah, when, when you think of the, just the rates of obesity and like all of these kind of, um, preventable diseases, like, you know, type two diabetes and just things that like, we, we, we know that we can impact to some degree mm-hmm. through movement, um, independent of the whole conversation about what mediates recovery of, you know, their condition, the secondary side effects of focusing on function, like when you think of the increases in bone density and, and preventing muscle atrophy, which we know is so important for metabolic health. And like we can, we can turn around somebody's life and reduce their risk of suffering, you know, so many diseases later in life by, by giving them permission to, to move. Right. And and like, I think that's like, you can get so in the weeds on pain this and pain that, but like, um, yeah, just, just having that bigger picture perspective where, uh, it's more about like just giving people permission to, um, 
to be physically active, uh-huh. like meet the physical activity guidelines. And, you know, you might be saving them from heart disease in 30 years, you know, <laughs> whereas if the, you, you kind of had this nocebic messaging that, oh, running's bad for your knees, like, you know, you never know the, the, the path you could be sending them down. Right. That's so true. So true. And, and given the fact, I think that then they find that recreational running's preventative against knee arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. So. Yeah. yeah. It's it's fascinating, man. It is it is very fascinating. And I I wonder, like, you know, are we are we getting to a place with science and research that we're understanding pain more or less? You know, and it's uh, it's tough to say, hey, because I think uh, I think I think Descartes had it figured out pretty simplistically back in the day. It just seems uh, yeah. it seems like it's getting more and more complicated, but it still doesn't solve the the problem that every day you still have to get up and you have to, like you said, do your activities of daily life regardless. Um, and I, I honestly don't think there's anything more painful than watching somebody else have the life that you want to have because you know you're you're too scared to move. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that sort of we're saying in like emotional pain that a, that sort of like psychological and emotional pain might far outweigh this sort of physical pain that you have because you have arthritis in your knee and I, I see that that's, I yeah. see that too much you know like people coming in to say like, oh like I, I just sold my golf clubs or I just sold my kayak and like it's the one thing that I really love doing I have this one guy he lives on a golf course and he just tortures himself he's had to get rid of my golf clubs because like you know my low back hurts every time I play nine holes and, and he just sits there now in his kitchen and looks out on the on the, on the third green and and it's just it's just horrible right because yeah. Why not just just? Yeah, it's, it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because you you just think of all the points that like what led him down that path, right? And mm-hmm. How how I guess that's a good that's that's maybe a good way to like kind of wrap it up is like how like every patient interaction we have we can either be making people in our society more robust and resilient and bringing them closer to their their goals and living the life that they want to live or we can be be bringing them further further away from that and I, I i don't think that um any you know your business model should be a reason to 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 you know to avoid focusing on function like i think i think that's i mean the ethical way to treat is to just get people back to doing what they love and uh and yeah so totally. I, yeah yeah i think that's probably a good way to yeah, wrap it up. finish off. Do you, do you have any resources you think for people who want to learn more about pain, where they can where they can go? And... Um, I think Lorimer Mosley's work, which I've mentioned a couple times, is excellent. Um, same with uh, Peter O'Sullivan's work out of Australia, cognitive functional therapy. Um, they have some great stuff, and he has some really fantastic papers, which kind of goes into the whole overprotection concept. Um, those guys are really on top of the game and are constantly putting out like fantastic research. Um, yeah, those would be the two names that come to mind. Obviously, like I, the, the course that I can't recommend enough would be, uh, reconciling biomechanics with pain science, um, from Greg Lehman, which was just a fantastic resource to learn more about pain. And, and he kind of goes into a lot of these decisions, like expose into a painful movement versus avoid away from it. Um, yeah, those would be the three the three names that I think would be lo- worth looking into for people. Well, How about you? Um, I, I think that there for for patients and people who experience a lot of you know, maybe even chronic pain things like that. There's um, I think it was through 
um, UVic, um, kind of where we we did undergrad. That I think it's called uh, LivePlanB.ca. I think. Um, and there's one more is that's uh, SelfManagementBC.ca. Those are two really cool online resources for just people who are experiencing a lot of pain. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. And then, like you said, like I, I totally echo the uh, the Greg Layman. Uh, didn't he have a part in the, that uh, pain management guidebook? Um, a couple, yeah. a couple of other ones yeah. that are really, really good reads for clinicians. That's for sure. Um, and I would advise one thing is uh, I remember this when I uh, was kind of looking at what what it means to be like somebody who you know is an expert in in pain and things like that. I never quite understood it. I think that especially in private practice, we need to be cautious over uh, where we send patients to. And just because somebody says they're an expert in the field doesn't actually make them that. Um, you know, regulation, I think, is a problem with people who are offering, um, you know, expertise or specialties in, in chronic pain opposed to just any other kind of ordinary PT. So um, I don't know if there's any way of fact-checking clinicians, um, but there's a lot of people offering uh, a lot of different type of specialized physical therapy that I don't know how special it is. Um, yeah. So <laughs> just be just be mindful. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just caution anybody who's going to a physio clinic that if in the first few sessions you have gotten off your back of the treatment table and uh, you haven't done anything more than, you know, clamshells and manual therapy, like, you, know, you may want to look into a different physio clinic. You know? <laughs> it's so <laughs> um, true. It's so true. You know? It should be progressive. A, a lot of it is just very simple. It's like progressively overload people. You, you, you don't make people more robust by having them lay on a table. A <laughs> so. a amen to that. You know, and I, I think the, the last point here is like I have this um, this sort of like almost like a, a three visits rule. You know, like if, if it hasn't gone somewhere within three visits, like am I actually doing my job, you know, or is it? <laughs> so I don't know. It's different for all different for every person i'm sure yeah case by case anyway my friend i'll uh we'll leave it at that yeah we'll leave it at that okay you take care brando good you, talking to you you as well take care Thank you so much for listening to the Paradox BT podcast. If you have any comments or feedback, the best way to get in touch with us is on Instagram. Brandon can be found at, at Pacific Edge Physio, and I can be found at, at Leo.Physio. We'd also really appreciate it if you gave us a follow and a like on whatever podcast app you use so you can get notified about future episodes as we release them. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.